Dotnet Rocks episode 802 with guest Alan Stevens. Recorded live Thursday, September 6th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to Dining Rocks. Carl and Franklin and Alan Stevens coming up. Hey, Mr. Campbell, it's road trip time. Hey, 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 yes, once again, I can't believe we're doing this again. We're not only doing it, we're doing it twice as long as we did last time. Well, you remember, I mean, the original one way back in 2005, which we were just getting to work together when you yep. talked me into doing that. Yeah. It was entirely your idea. It was my fault. And it was 20 cities in 30 days. Yeah. And at the end of it, we said, we're never doing that again. Yeah. And we were wrong. <laughs> Our wives said that. Yeah. We were wrong. <laughs> So then yeah. in 2010, when it came up again, uh, we said, well, we can't go 30 days. So we did 15 cities in three weeks. And that yeah. was a ton of fun. I think we we were really good at it at that point, I yep. think. Yep. And now... 34. Yeah. Twice across the country. Ouch. Uh, and two stops in Canada. I'm pretty happy about that. Yeah. Uh, the big news, of course, is that we have some breaks built in. So while it is yeah. over 12 weeks, we're taking a week off to go to Bulgaria for DevReach. Mm-hmm. And we've got a week off uh, during the Build Conference. Mm-hmm. And then we have the week off for U.S. Thanksgiving. And we can fly our family in to see us. Yes. Once in a while, too. So we're going to have so some it's... fun with that. So uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, go to the .NET Rocks webpage and click on the big road trip link on the right-hand side there, or you can go to .NET Rocks.com slash roadtrip.aspx and take a look. We're 34 cities. We are coming to you, and we're bringing rock stars with us. Yeah. Every show will be different. So let's get started with Beta Noah Framework. <laughs> Well, you know, this segment has really sort of morphed into just, you know, Carl's pearl of the day, whatever. So in honor of Alan Stevens, who is one of the first people to really embrace Twitter on a evangelistic scale, Hmm. let's put it that way, that I personally knew, uh, I found linktotwitter.codeplex.com. What? Link to Twitter. <laughs> so God is an open source third party link provider for the Twitter microblogging service. Uses standard link syntax for queries and includes method calls for changes via the Twitter API. Alan, is this not the coolest thing you've ever heard of? This is pretty cool. Link to twitter.codeplex.com. This is not right. <laughs> you people it. stop that. Stop I love it. it. I think it's awesome. That's hilarious. Well, anyway, there's been 169 downloads. It's in uh, in beta. There's one rating. It's five stars. And so it's, you know, fairly new. August 22nd, uh, it was when it went up. And there you go. Awesome. Know it, learn it, love Great. it. Great logo. Yeah, I love it. And and the URL is linqtotwitter.codeplex.com, but it's linq2twitter, the logo. That's what it's called. Nice. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? I got a story for you, and I have a comment. Which would you like first? Tell me the story. Okay, so this story comes from a dear friend of mine. His name is Horatio. 
And uh, we've known each other for a lot of years. So he's awesome. on a cruise <laughs> with his family this summer on the epic Norwegian, this gigantic ship uh, traveling in Europe, and bumps into a family from Kingston, Ontario. And as they're having a conversation they uh, over dinner sometime later, the guy, mm-hmm. it turns out, is an IT guy. And he says to Horatio, and I can't believe a Canadian did this to another Canadian. Hey, you're from the West Coast, so I need to ask you something. Do you know Richard Campbell? <laughs> I can't believe he even asked that question. And it's worse yet. Of course, Horatio knows me. We've been friends since high school. So, you know, this is funny, Richard. You're, you should just change your address to Richard Campbell, Canada. Canada. Yeah. So, all right. So, uh, and the, the hilarious part is in the ensuing conversation, Horatio, who has listened to our show time and again, he's in software as well, although slightly different area, had no idea we do five different podcasts. So now <laughs> his comment is like, what? You do five podcasts? Are you crazy? <laughs> so this is a shout out to Alex and his wife, Debbie, who met my friend Horatio on the Epic Norwegian. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the show. And send me an email, Richard at pwop.com, so I can send you out a mug. And uh, to my friend Horatio, there you go. I told you I'd call it out. Is that a crazy story? You like that? That is a crazy story, Richard. And uh, like I said, you should change your address. I'll just be a Canadian from now on. Yeah. I grabbed a comment off of show 690, which is a while back. That's J.D. Meyer's show on getting results the agile way, which I thought really tied into the stuff that, that Alan's doing as well. Mm-hmm. And this comment is from a fellow named Mike C., who says, Thanks so much for inviting JD on the show. I can't tell you how glad I am to finally hear someone say it's okay not to use computer programs and other systems to get results. Life is not structured and orderly. Hmm. Therefore, it makes sense that the means to manage it should also be flexible. I'm about to engage in a project to migrate a mainframe to Microsoft Technologies. This includes retraining the programming departments, which have been writing procedural code for the past 30 years. I don't want to lose those domain experts in new jobs and transfers because their knowledge of the system is valuable. I believe applying a more flexible system of achieving goals will be essential to grooming their confidence and encouraging growth. So thanks, J.D., I read what I could on Amazon, plus my copy of your book is in the mail. I'll be using many of your ideas for the project. Also, both my wife and I live with ADD, as do our children. Our house is a comedy of errors. For the past (laughs) four years, I have been using the rule of three, as JD recommends in his book, and literally writing down three daily wins on a sticky note. Love it. We are living proof that this is an extremely effective method of accomplishing goals. If we can do it, anyone can. You don't have to have ADD or ADHD. It is difficult to understand what a great testament the above statement represents. The best way to describe living with ADD is sleep four hours each night with a severe head cold, tunnel vision, and an endless list of things to do, and your mother-in-law following you around reminding you that everything (laughs) you do is inadequate. That's awesome. That's my life, basically. Ah, what a great tale, Mike. I'm glad JD could help you. And and I feel like we're going down a same subject path with Alan as well. And I, the project you're taking on is awesome to mm-hmm. move folks over to a totally new way of thinking about software. So, you know, big things. And I hope we can help your big plans with a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET If we read your comment on the show, a mug is on its way to you.
And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 250 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and other industry experts such as those that appear on this show. 12 to 15 new courses every month, a free 10-day trial giving you 200 minutes of access, wide range of developer courses including iOS, Java, Android, web development, everything and anything Microsoft, including extensive Windows 8 coverage. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce to you Mr. Alan Stevens. Alan Stevens is a father, a geek, a vegisexual, a vegetarian, and a software <laughs> artisan. <laughs> You're out of control there. And a software artisan living in Knoxville, Tennessee. Alan regularly speaks at industry conferences and user groups. He's an open-source technology facilitator. Alan is a Microsoft Most Valuable Professional in C-Sharp, a member of ASP Insiders, and when he's not playing with his kids, enjoying a fine cigar, singing or playing his acoustic guitar, man after my own heart, he occasionally updates his blog at netcave.org. Welcome back, Alan. You're going to have to do that over because that bio is out of date. Did Richard send you the new one that linked him to? Uh, oh, you linked him to it. Okay. Sorry, the, the, I'm not a C-sharp MVP anymore, and the URL's wrong. So. But you are a vegisexual, though. I, apparently. I didn't realize that's what it was called. You've outed me now. <laughs> no wonder that celery looked that way. It all makes sense now. Right. <laughs> all right, here we go. That's not right. <laughs> should we keep that <laughs> in the show right. and just read the new bio? I think we should keep that in the show. <laughs> Go right ahead. <laughs> All right. Here's the real bio, the real Alan Stevens. Will you please stand up? He is the Winston Wolf of software development. He solves problems. He is a partner at Nerd Hive Industries, LLC in Knoxville, Tennessee, where he builds kick-ass mobile and web apps. He is also a jerk on Twitter at, at Alan Stevens. <laughs> 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 I have been one-upped by the guy here. Like, I, I thought I was being funny. Man, that's funny. Truth in advertising. Oh, man. <laughs> How are we going to get through this show? I don't know. I've uh, always been impressed with your enthusiasm and your leadership skills, Alan, from the first time we met at TechEd in 2000-something. I just can't remember when it was, but it was uh, at a tech ed, and I think uh, we met you at a speaker idol. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And just that was 2008. Uh, yeah, okay. 2008. And just, you, you know, you're just bursting with enthusiasm. And then the whole open spaces thing, you educated us on that. Now, he, you made me a believer. I watched the way you made open spaces work at CodeMash all those years ago, too. I'm like, okay, I get it. This makes sense. This is a valuable use of my time. I've gone to them ever since. Yeah. Awesome. That's great to hear. Yeah. So um, your thoughts about leadership, are they changing or are they more just more cemented in um, what you already believed? Well, so the thing about leadership is it's, it's a completely pretentious topic for right. me to assume I can tell anybody anything about leadership. But what I find is I keep getting thrown in the fire and expected to be a leader. Huh. So, hmm. so I decided to start talking to people about how not to make the same mistakes I did. Hmm. You know, so it, it's not that I have any great wisdom. I've just got all the scars and I'm trying to save other people from it because at some point, at some point, 
your your responsibilities in software development go beyond code. And people look to you for design advice or they look to you to help draw the group together and that sort of thing. And those are the roles that I've been in for the last few years. And it took me a while to figure out that things had changed. The landscape around me had changed and I was having to develop a new set of skills. So I've been trying to talk about what I've learned to folks and uh, they, they really seem to uh, to get it. I just gave a talk uh, last week at DevLink about uh, leadership and the room was packed, and people were very enthusiastic. So I think it's probably a need that's not being filled. You know, I think I'm not the only one that that ended up growing beyond just being uh, a good coder and needs some guidance and direction on where to go from there. You know, the thing that um, strikes me as awesome about the open spaces thing, uh, and if you don't know what we're talking about, this is a whole sort of alternative meeting style for people to uh, to to only speak one at a time and uh, sort of very respectful and get to the heart of the issues. And it, what seems to me, anytime that I'm put in that conversation, I you know where I see two opposing opinions and things start to get personal. You know, things start, and I don't mean personal in terms of they're taking personal shots at each other. I just mean that you know somebody's button gets pushed and then you know they throw a little more emotion into their argument and then the other person throws a little more emotion into their argument and then. You know, they're, and then suddenly they're not understanding each other. And uh, so I find my role is sort of like an interpreter. Like, I think what you're trying to say is that, you know, in a more diplomatic sure. way, do you find yourself playing sure, that, that mediator that, role? Yeah, that's facilitation. And, you know, there's a positive side to what you're describing in that people would not get triggered like that if they didn't care deeply about the topic. Sure. Right. So. So, so the 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 kind of uh, the kind of ninja move is to flip that from being a negative friction point to uh, to get the momentum going in the same direction where people that seem to disagree on the surface both agree that the topic is of great importance and they care. Right. Uh, and so, yeah. So jumping in there as a facilitator, and and you know, it's just as simple as saying what I hear you saying is right. Repeating their words back. And that there's a part of their brain that's not conscious. When they hear their words come back to them, they know they've been heard. Yeah. And and people just relax. It's a, it's sort of an essence of validation, right? It's just that you've immediately Absolutely. validated that person by hearing them. Sure. And how many times have you had somebody who was in a a role that was supposed to be a leadership role, and they didn't do that? Yeah. You know, they told you to you know eat what you're given and go back to your cube and just do your work. When you know, I, I know I've done this several times where I brought issues to people. And I didn't expect to change the world, but I wanted them to at least say, yes, I hear you, and I'm glad you brought it to my attention. You know, that's validation. I think another layer of this problem is that software, when software you create, they're your children. And so oh, yeah. the really destructive cycle I see is that somebody looks at somebody else's software and berates it. And it's like, hey, dude, you're making fun of that guy's kid. Right. So don't be surprised that he's angry about it. Sure. And and one problem, I think, in the healthy cultures I've been in on teams, there's a lot of code sharing. There's pair programming. There's, there's a, a pattern of code reviews, you know, not just quarterly throw somebody's code up on the wall and tear them down. Right. Just constant code reviews. So you never get in that situation where you feel like someone's calling your baby ugly. Mm-hmm. It's much more constructive. And, and that's where... If you're doing that regularly, people 
understand how to communicate with each other, and they know how to tell one another. Uh, I remember talking to Ward Cunningham once and talking about pair programming, and he says, well, you don't even have to talk to the person. You just point at the screen. They'll see their own mistake. Sure. You know, and so if you have that, then it's not an insult if somebody points out that I left out a semicolon or a, a single equal instead of a double equal. You know, that's a big help. But if you don't have a culture where you are communicating regularly and you're sharing code, then absolutely you go off and you build this module and then you deliver it to the team and then everybody goes, what is, what is this? This isn't what we expected. And so you, you're, you're creating, uh, you're creating a situation where then people can snipe at each other. And the way to avoid that is just kind of constantly go back to communication. I always like to counsel clients and teams to, uh, to favor communication over procedures. Yeah. yeah. If we can increase communication, we need fewer procedures. The procedures are compensation for really a lack of trust. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I have three things that I, I uh, talk about in my talk on leadership. The first one is trust, because I see that all the time. I see people hiring developers, you know, uh, many of them making six-figure incomes, and then they manage them like they're four-year-olds yeah. that they can't trust to walk out on their own. And I ask them, well, why did you hire these people if you don't trust them to do their job? Yeah. But in, I, I mean, I find trust vital in all the work that I do. And I've worked really hard to find ways when we're assembling new teams to build trust up. Do you have a particular process you go through, approaches you take to building trust in teams? Well, the first thing is what we talked about before, the validation, the listening. Uh, the, the key there is to get behind someone else's eyes. And this is something we all have trouble with because we've got our own objectives and we're on our own path. But if when you're listening to someone talk, instead of formulating the next thought you want to convey, you're listening to them and trying to get behind their eyes to see the world the way they see it, then you're going to build trust because they're going to hear the compassion in your voice. They're going to hear, you're going to respond in a way that is very sensitive to their concerns, even if you don't share their concerns. It doesn't happen overnight, and some people are unreachable, but the communication is so important, and also, I think, a culture of safety. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, one thing I I, I love is, uh, in in modern software development, there's this, there's a movement toward continuous integration and unit tests and and all of this automation to save us from making stupid mistakes and getting them in production. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I talked to a guy once after a, a talk I gave at a user group who said his first day on a new contract, he shut down the plant. Awesome. Because he pushed the bug. Yeah. So the, wow. the company's losing, you know, tens of thousands of dollars a minute. And his manager never once let anyone know where the problem came from and who was to blame. Because the fact that a new person on the job can shut down the plant is not the new person's problem. That's a process problem. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a culture of trust, we all know we're going to make mistakes. I mean, I do it. I still do it today, right? And I, I don't make big, dumb mistakes as much as I used to, but I make just as many little dumb mistakes. I, I, when you get to the culture of uh, trust environment, it's about being able to to fail and not be punished for it. It's that that when you there's so much in software in my mind that is so intangible so flexible if we don't take risks we never build anything interesting or capable you've got to be able to build it and and be wrong and it's not the end of the world yeah and hopefully you can be wrong before you go into production i mean that's the whole idea of 
writing software. You test it and you make sure that everything's going to work out. But uh, I, I'm proud of failure because that's the way I learn. You know, when I'm writing something and it doesn't work, that's great. Now I know I'm never going to do that for that particular solution. So if it works right the first time, you don't know what you did right. Right. <laughs> and, and the whole point of agile software development is that we get working software in front of users sooner rather than later so we can find out what we did wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And we get that feedback. And so, right, we don't build it perfect. We build it as best we understand it so we can get it and find out what's better. Because what we do is very hard. It's very complex. And it's not the typing part. It's not even the syntax part. It's understanding new domains and the way that strangers think and work. Mm -hmm. And that's an iterative process. You're going to spiral in on that. You can't walk a straight line to understanding someone else's work environment and their priorities and, and all the crazy business rules that surround it. So if you have a culture of safety, then it's understood that what we put out there is our best guess. And when we find out what didn't work, that's information to go and make a better guess. And so that kind of productive environment then allows for people to take those risks and to communicate also when they're in unsure. Uh, what, one of the worst things I see when I go into uh, different teams is people afraid to ask for help. Right. So they'll yeah. spin their wheels for four hours, whereas if I'm stuck for 20 minutes and Stack Overflow doesn't help me, I'm knocking on my business partner's door. Yeah. I, I, the line I've used is the difference between junior developers and senior developers is senior developers say, I don't know, more often and sooner. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who have controls for Windows 8 already. They're looking for beta testers for their new RAD controls for Metro. You can request an access code at Telerik.com slash Metro to get access to the industry's first control set for building apps for Windows 8. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. I hear a lot from listeners of our show that they, you know, rather than embarrass themselves in a conversation, they'll listen to our show because we don't care if we sound dumb when we ask the question, you know. So they get to overhear those conversations and and uh, sort of save face, if you will, of, of asking those questions themselves. And I don't know about you guys, but I've made the mistake of assuming I knew things and not asking the simple, obvious questions like, why are we building this software to begin with? Now you're just talking crazy stock, Mr. Stevens. That's crazy. (laughs) I love that part about being a consultant, is that you're allowed to walk in the room, point at the elephant and go, hey, you guys know this is an elephant, right? (laughs) Yeah. You guys are making money doing this on paper. Why are you going to spend all this money with me? I would rather you be happy and productive than than be frustrated with software that that doesn't help your job. So right, so being progressing in your expertise, uh, you know this this is actually a, a known phenomenon called the Dunning Kruger effect, where people who are are less uh, proficient over uh, they overestimate their own competency, and people that are very competent underestimate their competency because they know how many ways there are for them to screw up. They're more aware of what they don't know. Right. Yeah, the more I know, the more afraid I become. Right. So if you can get people safer to go, I don't know, they actually get better faster. And so in in the context of leadership, for me, it's about building that environment. And I think humor is a huge part of that. Since I work on remote teams primarily, 
I always make sure we have a chat room. You mm-hmm. can use a Jabber, which is a signal R, uh, J-A-B-R dot net, I believe. Mm-hmm. Or you can use Campfire from uh, 37 Signals. But you just have this chat room where you've got this constant ongoing dialogue. But the key there is I always try to drop dumb gifts in there and, and, and build up running jokes. Because when people can make jokes with one another, uh, then when there's a hard problem, they're less likely to point fingers and more likely to focus on problem solving. So that, that esprit de corps is a, is a huge part of productivity in my experience because it doesn't matter how talented you are, if you're a bunch of individuals that don't have a common identity and a common vision for the, the software you're building, then you're not going to get anywhere. So trust is my number one issue. That's the first thing that I tell people. The second thing I tell them is to learn to tell a story. You know, yes. we're, we're, we're all nerds. And we're logical, but people don't respond to logic. They respond to emotion. So if you tell a story that they can visualize in their mind and see how they'll feel at the end of the story when they get to the promised land, then you can come back and talk about what the details about how to get there are. But if you just come in and declare that we're going to now follow this process and use this tool, it's going to be much harder to get people to join you in your quest. Do you, um, do you believe in the power of lunch? Oh, absolutely. That, that comes uh, later on. I say uh, food. Food is so important. We're, see, so much of the human behavior is unconscious, and there's something primal about our, our, our primate brains. When we all sit down together and we eat, there's a part of us that says we are part of the same tribe. Right. And and it's not conscious. It's totally pre-conscious and pre-verbal. But absolutely, when I'm on site, you know, as soon as I'm on a new team, I like to get on site for at least a week. And I don't give a flip what we do during the day. What matters is we go to dinner in the evening. We go out for drinks. I meet people's families and their children. Because then when they have a problem with me, I'm not that outside consultant pushing them around. I'm part of their group. And they can come to me and we can work productively because we have a shared identity. So I got a story. I got a story for you. Um, Before I was a software developer professionally, I went to a recording school in Florida. And I don't know if I told this story on the show before. But anyway, uh, and and I took a production class. And being a producer in the audio world is a different animal than being an engineer an engineer is the guy who sits at the board and does all the you know moves the dials and the knobs and stuff the producer is the one who says we need more air in the vocal no you got to do that again because you didn't have the right inflection or you know let's try it a couple more times you know the producer is the one that sort of runs the show and and is satisfied with the take right because they're the ones that are producing it and bringing it to the record company so he says the biggest problem that you'll find is not a technical problem. It's a it's a people problem. And that is, you know, people are in the studio, they're they're paying for their time, they're a little nervous, and they don't eat. Blood sugar drops, you know, and then people just they can't get it. They their fingers don't work, their their voice isn't is you got no power or whatever. They're getting frustrated and the downward spiral starts. And the two most important words you can remember are let's eat. Let's eat. If you don't remember anything from this class, remember, let's eat. When you see that happening, it's time to stop everything and go eat. And you will find that once you sit down and have a meal together, 
you know, who, the guitar player's pissed off at the producer, the, the drummer's pissed off at his girlfriend, you know, whatever it is, those things just sort of get resolved. And then you get back in and you get back to it and everything's better. Now, what you just described is absolutely accurate. And it has a, a name. It's called ego depletion. When we're forced to make decisions, every decision we, we make burns energy. Uh, you know, the brain is, I believe, 2% of the body weight and it uses 20% of the energy. And every decision has a cost and it, and it uses up blood glucose. And, uh, and there's the term decision fatigue. All this is from a social sociologist named Roy Baumeister. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he has a great book called Willpower that's out, but he talks about this. And for me, it was identifying something I already knew from experience just giving a name to it and making it more aware, more aware of it for myself and for my team. Because you're absolutely right. Let's eat, get the blood sugar up, get your mind, your conscious mind off of something. So you're raising your blood sugar so you've got more energy when you come back, but it also lets things kind of churn in the unconscious. So when you come back to work and you sit down, things can be obvious that were very hard and opaque before you went to eat. I believe in that 100 percent I also think what you eat has a, a big effect on the team. Like if you go and eat bowls of pasta, you know, and, and pizza and stuff, yeah, about half an hour after an hour after that, you're going to be asleep, you know? Sure. Absolutely. But yeah, uh, eating some protein, some fresh vegetables and, you know, that's going to, uh, I think, I think, and I don't want to be a dietitian here, but you know, it does change people what you eat. Absolutely. Well, and you, uh, as you know, uh, I have a strange diet, but I came to it by trying other diets to what worked for me. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, I need some quick-burning energy, but then I need slower-burning energy as well. So, for instance, if you are feeling uh, ego-depleted, uh, you can drink some orange juice or some lemonade, and it'll spike your blood sugar. But then after that, you're going to need to get some peanut butter or some walnuts or something slower-burning and your, some fats and some protein uh, so that you don't then crash from that uh, that sugar rush. Yeah, and that's the last thing you want when you're you know when you're just about to solve the the problem in uh, you know you know and you crash. Think about the the stereotypical programmer drinking his Mountain Dew and he's spiking and he's crashing and he's spiking and he's crashing and uh, you know I've learned from experience that that I don't want to work that way. Yeah. So so the food is very important as far as building a, a, a shared identity. And the idea of telling a story is about building a shared identity, too, because if you two guys were on a team with me, I would want you to buy into the vision of where we're going, that promised land. But I need to tell you the story in the kind of Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, since we're going to go out and we're going to find the master and he's going to give us, you know, some magical item. And then we're going to, we're going to face these trials and, and we may fear that despair that we'll never get there. And then eventually someday we'll, we'll put together the pieces and we'll make it into the promised land. And if I get you guys to believe in that vision and that story, then when things get difficult, you'll remember we're on a quest together mm. and we'll treat each other differently and we'll focus on the problem differently. And so all of this comes together and none of this has anything to do with typing code. Right. And you are the first guest who has dropped the Joe Campbell reference, and I give you serious kudos for that. If you don't know who this guy is, you really do need to, just for life. Uh, Richard, you know what time it is? 
I must be that happy time again. It is time to give away some stuff. And today we're giving away, as we do on every show, a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, which is everything they make in one box. And uh, today's winner is Eric Holton. Congratulations, Eric. Congratulations, Eric. Don't drive off the road. Just pull over and, you know, rewind. And, and you'll cheer, hear you know, all that good stuff. Yeah. So uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, every show we give away uh, a Telerik DevCraft complete collection and other stuff that we get randomly. We give away uh, tickets to conferences and things like that when we get them. And every December, we're going to give away $5,000 worth of high technology handpicked by Richard the Toy Boy and myself. So if you want to get in on it, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button in the upper right-hand corner, and fill out a couple of forms, and it's free. And we have thousands of members, so join the ranks. Hey, Alan, if you yes, were going sir. to pick $5,000 worth of gadgets for someone, what would you want? My goodness. I don't know. $5,000? Can I get recording equipment? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. And, and not to make it too forced of a seg, but another interesting part of the sort of building a good team and so forth is getting them out of the office and doing stuff together like music. Yeah. And go-karts. Go-karts. Yeah. Something go outside. Go-karts are key. <laughs> paintball. <laughs> yeah, paintball. Exactly. Right. Because you, you beat up onto each other. You talk smack. And, and that's how, you know... A, a friend of mine uh, is a woman developer, and she says, boys are mean. <laughs> and and what I have to explain is that means we like one another. If we right. don't like one another, we don't even talk. The three right? stooges <laughs> slapped each other because they loved each other. <laughs> they right. loved you know, each I, other. Sorry. I can't talk about anybody's mama but my friends, right? Right. <laughs> That's, That's it. That's what it comes down to. So you want to be able to talk smack. You want to go out and play paintball. You want to do go-karts. You want to have these competitive, fun things together because then you bring that attitude back to uh, to the office and to the project. Yeah. And let's face it, what we do sometimes goes very badly, and there's a lot of money on the line, and people's jobs are there, and the stress gets very high. And if you don't have any margin, emotional margin on the team and with your teammates, things get ugly very quickly. Just don't let the sales guys see you having so much fun, or they'll get really jealous. <laughs> right. Well, that's kind of a management mentality, right? There's a, there's a, there's a difference between management and leadership, yeah. right? Management says, you guys can't go play foosball because we've got a delivery in two weeks. Right. A, a leader says, you guys better go blow off some steam so you can come back and get another two hours of work into that. Right, right. Yep. I, I think the, lead, the leader recognizes the idea that when software developers uh start to burn out they not only stop making progress they start sending it backwards yep like you're Absolutely. this team's doing net harm to the project right. stop them you need to go to the beach now right well what happens when let's when let's say that you're in an organized labor situation and you're not allowed to strike do you know what what the, the labor unions do then they call it work to rule that means they do the bare minimum of what they're required to do. Right. And everything grinds to a halt. So if you, if you get your developers to where they are resenting being there and they, and they're only going to do the bare minimum, all your progress is lost. It's all friction at that point. The beatings will continue until morale improves. Absolutely. Which brings me to the, the third and final point that I, I like to make about re, Leadership, and I, I want to tell you a story. You guys ready for a story? Yeah, please. All right, so I gave this talk to a user group, and it went pretty well, but something was missing. 
I, I was I was conveying all the intellectual ideas, but I was not getting the heart across. And last week at DevLink, I was uh, out to dinner with some folks, and I was going to meet some other friends at a bar, but my phone died. So I went back to the hotel and plugged my phone into charge, and then I realized, I think I need to just go upstairs and sit on the deck by the pool and think about this talk to find out this missing element. So uh, as I do when I think, I got my notebook and my pen, I poured some nice single malt scotch, I got a nice cigar, and I went and I sat up on the deck, drinking scotch, smoking a cigar, writing notes in my notebook. Well, there I am on the beautiful sunset in Chattanooga last week, and an elderly gentleman, older gentleman in his 60s, comes out on the deck, looks around, and says, this is beautiful. I'll be right back in a minute with a cigar. He comes out, introduces himself. His name is George. I shake his hand. We talk about my business, talk about what he's doing there in town. And it comes out in this conversation that he's a retired football coach. Hmm. Well, making conversation, I say, hey, where did you coach? He listed a string of places that I could not all recall all of them, but four of them stuck in my mind. Florida State, Alabama, Broncos, and the Tennessee Titans. Good Lord. Yes. So I turned to George and I said, George, I'm giving a talk on leadership tomorrow. Could I bounce some ideas off of you? And we proceeded to have a fantastic conversation for the next hour or so while we finished our cigars. Uh, it was really a case of, you know, the teacher being there when the student was ready. And what came out of that conversation was that a fundamental key to leadership is valuing others. Mm-hmm. And the example that he gave to me was when uh, Peyton Manning gave the Most Valuable Player Award recently. He'd won it four times previously, and he was giving the award, and he said, the way that you make yourself most valuable is to raise the value of the people around you. You constantly allow them to succeed, allow them to take credit, and the entire team gets better, making you more valuable to your team. This is kind of backwards from the way we think of, if I'm going to raise myself up, I've got to keep others down. But that's a dysfunctional environment. And what was so great about talking to this gentleman was, I thought I just had a bunch of hippy-dippy ideas about leadership. But this guy coached pro football, and he confirmed up and down the line everything that I said. And he told me that the, he believes the greatest compliment one man can give another is to say, I trust you. Hmm. And that's really the heart of it to me. Hmm. If you're a leader, your people trust you, and you trust your people. And that's the missing element I see so often. We can talk about all of the various symptoms of a problem in an organization or on a team, but the key comes down to that. If we trust one another, it doesn't matter where we are in the development of our process or our technical skills. We will improve. If we don't, it's very unlikely that we're going to get any better together. Now, what happens when you have an untrustworthy uh, employee, let's say, or someone that you are leading and managing? And who has proven themselves untrustworthy, and you think to yourself, or someone says to you, they just need another chance. They just uh, need I mean, to feel trusted. Would you extend your trust to that person? Well, it depends on if I've tried in the past. Uh, you know, it, you, there's no hard and fast rules, right? We can't right. say, you know, you did these three things and therefore X. But. Yeah. But there are two options, in my opinion, in that situation. The option one is 
get them somewhere where they are productive and happy. They're unhappy. There's no way they're acting in an untrustworthy, backstabbing way or deceitful manner if they're happy and they like the people around them. Right. So either out of a company or on another team, doing what they enjoy. So that's the first thing. The second thing you can do is just route around them. If you build a tight enough network with the other members of the team, they're not going to have any influence. They can't derail you. And an example of this for me, I didn't really have any negative folks in my user group, but I never could seem to get my user group growing the way I wanted them to be until the day that I finally stopped trying to grow the user group and I started just really connecting with the three people that came every week and then the five people and then the ten people. And then I looked around one day and I couldn't fit any more chairs in the room. Right. So if you build that momentum... This outlier cannot derail you because they don't, they're just one person and they don't have that much influence. And I've routed around the CEO of the company before, so I know this can be done. Yeah, it seems a little passive aggressive, you know, but that kind of thing happens <laughs> in corporate, uh, corporations all the time, though, that people, you know, aren't, aren't dealt with. They're just, you know, ignored. They find themselves ignored and feeling irrelevant, but that gives them even more motivation to do something stupid. So I don't think it solves the problem. Well, but it can because uh, some people you can't move. You know, there, there are a lot of patterns in organizations and teams, and one of them I call is the troll, the troll in the cave. The troll in the cave was there from day zero. He wrote the first version of the software. He doesn't have to come to scrum meetings, and he may not even use version control. Well, the only way you're going to carry the team forward is to just leave him out in the cold doing whatever he does on his own. Yeah. Now, you, you said that you used the term passive-aggressive, and I understand where that's coming from, but... That, it's really a matter of intention, because the art of war, if you've ever read that, is just a series of strategies. You can use those in when your intentions are, are low or negative, uh, or you can use those strategies to accomplish great and positive ends. So the strategies themselves are simply ways to attempt to accomplish a goal. If the goal is worthy, it doesn't make the strategy unworthy. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread. But now, of course, it's Component1Spread.net. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.net and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Component1. Smarter components for smarter developers. We were talking uh, with Rob Connery and Scott Hanselman about the trolls, weren't we, Richard? Yeah. And uh, they they are, you know, they're the guys that sit there and they throw rocks at everything. And, you know, when you, sit, when you ask them, why are you so negative all the time? And they say, no, I'm not negative. I'm just keeping it real. Right. Sure. And, and that's, you know, that's one of the situations, like you described, where you've got somebody that is, that is obviously trying to derail things. And what are you going to do with them? You don't feed the trolls. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there's I think there's a little troll in all of us, though, don't you think? I mean, and there are probably times when I've felt like, you know, throwing rocks and uh, 
Usually it's because some, there's something else bugging me. But uh, that's I think that's when a good leader will say, you know, it, it, instead of, you know, trying to, you know, uh, validate their belittling of somebody for not knowing something, you know, say, well, maybe we should get you two together and you could teach this person this thing that you're obviously knowledgeable about. Do you know what I mean? Right. Turn that into a, you know, because sometimes there are people that have knowledge and they sit back and they see all the same mistakes being made. And uh, they're giving you a signal that they may their knowledge may be being underutilized. So well, and a good leader recognizes uh, indicators of uh, problems early and responds. Uh, you know, it, to get, to go really hippy dippy for a moment, it, any any expression from a human being can be broken down into either an expression of love or an expression of fear. Mm. Trolls are afraid. Yeah, <laughs> and if you can make them feel safe, make them feel valued, then you stand a much better chance of derailing their attempts to to disrupt whatever uh, environment you're trying to build in your organization. But they can turn into some of your best allies because that's they, they'll bring the same amount of positive energy they have uh, to the negative. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and and a, a team. You know, I really like the the whole uh, team of rivals approach that's attributed to Abraham Lincoln. But I don't want to work with people that think the same way as I do because I'm not going to learn anything, yeah. and it's not going to challenge me to find new creative heights. So I think it's I think one thing I, I like about Scott Hanson that he and I have exchanged this on Twitter before is that disagreement is not disrespect. Many people think if you don't agree, then you don't respect them. Well, Scott and I disagree on all kinds of things. It doesn't mean we disrespect one another at all, sure. and that's the kind of team I want to be on. Yeah, we do seem to have a cultural problem lately conjoining uh, disagreement with disrespect. Yes, yeah, and it's an easy logical fallacy to to fall into. But really, if if a team is healthy, if you have this this practice of eating together and and this jovial camaraderie, then you're less likely to see someone disagreement as disrespect. You will assume that they are trying to solve a problem in a way that you hadn't considered before. And that's a lot more productive. So I got one more resource I want to point you guys to if sure. you haven't seen this. Uh, it's a, uh, a little video that uh, Derek Spivers does a, a, a audio over. If you don't know him, he created CD Baby back uh, in the 90s. But at Spivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S, slash F-F, it is a little video about a guy dancing at a concert, and he's just doing this wild dance. And eventually, somebody comes and dances with him. And Derek Fivers makes the great point that the first follower turns a lone nut into a leader. The idea here is that you're not a leader without followers, and you have to value your followers. And your early followers, the, the first people you recruit into your vision and onto your quest, those are the leaders to the next layer of followers. So you have to empower and value these people so they understand how to empower and value the other folks. And that's how you build a movement. And this video is just hilarious because in three minutes, it goes from a lone nut to you reach a tipping point where everybody wants to get in on the crazy dance move. And uh, it, it's a nice little, uh, a little morality tale on how to move from feeling like an outcast to the uh, leader of a movement. <laughs> All right. I will not watch this right now because that'll just be crazy. But yeah, it's a great example of of what we're talking about here. 
And it seems on the surface unrelated to software development, but it's exactly what we do every day. Right. It, it, it seems just more psychology and than it does uh, in anything else. I mean, you, about taking risks. I mean, I do this in music all the time. You know, when when a band comes in and they they sound tentative. You know, when music sounds tentative, like sure. I'm not really sure if I mean to do this, but I'll try it and don't judge me. You know, when it's but when it sounds right. intentional, even if it's screwed up sounding. It's wow, that's pretty cool. It, because the guitar player or the singer, or whatever, sounds like that's exactly what they meant to do. You know. Well, I used to teach uh, guitar to children for a, a while, and I used to explain to them that the mistakes are part of the music. Yep. When you listen to an expert, they're making mistakes that they're aware of. They're just so good you don't know they made mistakes. Right. But if you are unwilling to make mistakes, you cannot make music. It's Absolutely. <laughs> But in software, you know, we think we should get it right the first time and, you know, push it straight to production. Well, and essentially we never do, right? That is one of the core delusions in software. Yeah. Projects yeah. are never done. They're abandoned. <laughs> you just give up on them at some point or more readily to take it away from you. That's, that's <laughs> right. close enough. You can stop you now. You can no longer do that. This, that's not yours anymore. <laughs> well, and how do you measure progress in software development? You make new mistakes, right? Right. You, you had new errors. You fixed something. How do you know you fixed it? You got a new error. Yeah. Hey, guys, and remember when our software was all fucked up and we fixed it? Well, I got some new things. It's all fucked up again. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, so you, you say it's all psychology, and I agree. But the problem is we get so focused on the latest technology and, and programming language and tool that we forget a lot of this. And it's very core. And, and what I discovered was by talking about this, that there is a need for people to hear this. And because I come from a technological background, I don't necessarily sound like, a, you know, some late night infomercial telling people to empower themselves. Right. Yeah, I like to the disclaimer you said, uh, you know, I've been the guy in the room standing next to the box when it broke and have had to calm people down. Uh, you know, so here's what I've learned and the mistakes that I've made. Right. Yeah. And, and I call the, the talk I do leveling up because that's what it is. You look around one day and wait, I'm at a different level with different challenges and different problems to solve. So here's a, here's a toolkit and a few recipes and go out there and see if you can use them and, and make your team more productive. Alan, where do you fall on dealing with the issue of, uh, you know, the most senior engineer being promoted to the leadership role? Is that a mistake? Well, you know, I think, I think it's interesting because in, uh, Software development companies like Microsoft, there are parallel tracks where you have technical people that are essentially C-level executives, mm -hmm. but they're technical fellows, I think they call them. Yeah, right? tech fellows. And, and that is absolutely essential if you make your living on technology. Uh, because great business people can be great business people. They can see marketing opportunities and all of that, but they may not see the technical implications of the decisions they're making, so you get that nice counterbalance. Now, when you talk about promotion, there's a number of ways that can go. Is it just management where the person that it was this, uh, was this ringer of a developer and now they're having to keep up with people's vacation time and see if they get into the office on time? Or are we talking about promoting them to a level of software designer? I'm a big fan of Fred Brooks' uh, model in the Mystical Man Month of having this master programmer at the center because that guides the design. 
uh, and I think you guys probably know this, when you look at someone's software, if you look at their, their project and their code, you will see things that they don't see because of your experience designing systems and getting better at it over time. So if you're promoting them because they have developed an intuition that you can't get from anyone else, I think that's a great thing. But making the move into management is often the worst thing that could happen. And more often than not, I find folks that were great engineers who are, are working for a company they want to stay with, where the only path up is to move over to a more management role, and they right. want to make that move. Right. Well, and, and it depends on, on what the opportunities are. Like, I, I have a friend who has to go run a, a plant for six weeks so that he can be on the management track. Right. right. So he's got to stop doing this thing he's really good at, go do something he knows nothing about. But the end game for him is he gets to to move into a track where he could be the CIO and have some significant influence over the issues that matter to him. So it really depends on the individual and, and what your personal goals are. Uh, but I really think, you know, one thing I've discovered is that it's not hard to hit the ceiling on, on salary in our profession. Mm-hmm. About 10, 12 years in, you're just tracking cost of living increases. But it, and, you know, it's not specific to our industry. There are lots of industries where you do hit a ceiling. In you, you are in a particular profession, and that profession inside of your particular industry tops out at a certain point, and you need to change gears. Right. So, so then it becomes if money is not the motivating factor. You know, if you if you're a fan of Daniel Pink's book Drive and the the idea of intrinsic motivation. Mm. If you're making enough to feed your family and support your hobbies and you're engaged in your work, that's great. Yep. You know, but if you have higher goals than that, maybe if you need more money to accomplish your vision for your life, well, then absolutely, you've got to make some decisions. For me personally, that's why I went into consulting. I got my dream job. I was a remote developer for a software development company. And I mean, this was the kind of place where after I'd been there a while and I walked down the halls and I knew how scary smart the people were, I wondered how I made it through the interview process. Hmm. But what I realized very quickly was I was just bored working on one project all the time. And so I went back into consulting because for me, it's much more engaging to go in, help people solve the low-hanging fruit. You know, I can walk in and the problem I can see all the problems. I figure out which problems they're aware of, help them solve those, and I go elsewhere until they recognize the rest of their problems. And that's more satisfying for me. So it, it really is a difficult choice, and I'm impressed by the people that can stay at a company for 15 years or longer, uh, because that's just, I could not do that. I really need the variety uh, to keep me stimulated and keep me learning. And trying on different things all the time. Yeah. But, uh, and so if I'm going to go down this path, I guess we're going to wrap the show in this one, but I've now chosen to step away from the thing I've been good at for years to jump into this leadership thing. People are encouraging me. Uh, how do I get started? What's your list for, for well, tackling it, this? Let me, let me call out a fallacy there. You don't have to step away. It can, it can be both and. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're a tech, let's say you're, you're, you're at the top of your game. Uh, because I, I begin my talk on leadership by saying technical competence is assumed. Right. There's no, you, you don't get a free pass. You got to stay up to date. You got to know your stuff. But if you want to go from there to being technically competent and a mentor, a role model, a leader, a change maker, that sort of thing, then that's where you're going to have to step back and look at your strengths and weaknesses and follow the little tips that I give you. You know, it's not about the facts. It's about how people feel about the facts. Sure. 
So figure out what the problem is, get behind other people's eyes and see how they feel about the problem. And what you do is you take them into Mordor and you bring them back to the Shire, right? <laughs> you walk them in and you say, this is how bad it's gotten and how confined you feel by this. And this is the vision of what it could be if you join me. Mm. Join me and together we will p- complete your training. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> but so, so I'm not even talking about changing your, your actual job title because leadership is seldom associated with a job title. Mm-hmm. You're very lucky if you get a manager or a vice president that's really a leader. And I've had a couple. I had a uh, retired lieutenant uh, colonel from the Air Force as a VP once, and he never strutted around like Patton or ordered people around. He listened and lifted people up. But that's a gift. Usually the leaders are the people around you that just have the vision to see where things are and, and have, just know a little bit about how to communicate with people so that they don't uh, create conflict, but they, they bring people together. So, so yeah, so your, 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 uh, your set of tools that you take away are building trust, getting people to trust you, trusting others. And food is important. Play is important in there. These are very important parts of work. Telling a story, you know, getting the emotion behind the facts and connecting with people there and getting them to join in, buy into your vision of whatever the promised land is for you. And then the third thing is to value others so that they value you. If you value others and they value you, then when you propose a solution, they're much more likely to go along with you. You can't just ignore people and look down your nose at them and then expect them someday to join you uh, in uh, storming the castle walls. One more thing, Alan, before we go. And you, you mentioned, um, you know, triggers, the things or words or phrases or or things that trigger memories in people and they, you know, become angry and uh, emotional about things. You know, this is part of being human, but um, to be aware of it is is one thing. To actually be able to work on that on your own person is a totally different level of self-awareness. And uh, uh, for anybody who suffers from this and it is causing problems in your life, I get to recommend a book, and it's called Young to Live By, J-U-N-G, Young to Live By. And uh, it, it sort of talks about Carl Jung's uh, take on your personal psyche and the, the components of it and why some of these things happen to us and then gives some suggestions on what to do, just you personally, um, to, uh, to, you know, it's sort of like the ultimate self-help book, and I know it sounds like that, and it sounds corny, but, you know, for anybody who's smart enough to read this, because this has been the problem with Jung, he was very indigestible for many people. Yeah. And so this author sort of, you know, translates it into plain English. And it's the basis of the Myers-Briggs personality tests, um, uh, you know, the please understand me, the different personality types, it's understanding all of that stuff about yourself. And then what what type of person you sort of is your shadow person. And uh, what kind of things can happen and why. So anyway, I would recommend that book to anybody who's uh, cantankerous. Hey, man, I've got it on my, uh, I put that on my Amazon wish list while you were talking about it, because that sounds great. Yeah. I want to I wanna, I wanna counter that with a book called Be Excellent at Anything by uh, Tony Schwartz, uh, because he has a whole section in there on exactly that topic of triggers, how to recognize them how to, to work with them and strategies to not allow yourself to be triggered. Yeah. One of them 
keep snacks close at hand. Keep snacks? Yeah, absolutely. Because <laughs> your blood sugar, your blood sugar gets low, yeah. just like we talked about before, and you're more likely to snack. Think about your kids, right? Oh, it's so true when with the kids. You come home at the end of the day, and you're hungry. Boy, can they get on your nerves! And they, so, you know, they really just get upset over anything. And uh, yeah, it's time to eat. Let's eat. Let's eat, exactly. Alan, it's been great talking to you. I I love this level of conversation. I wish we could do it more. Well, thanks for having me on, guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you guys, and I'm looking forward to seeing you both at uh, conferences in the near future. All right. Maybe we'll see you out there on the road trip, because we're going to be in your neck of the woods. We'll be in Nashville. Absolutely. I'd love that. I'll be your ride along. Awesome. (laughs) You got it. And I'm sure there'll be scotch involved, because we don't have to drive. Oh, Excellent. I'm in. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes,